may you use them with as much skill and fervor and vigor as Keely just did to bless you with the gifts that she's been given. Uh, I invited my wife up here to give you guys a quick, uh, a quick update. Uh, those of you who communicate with Oakland via email, I probably received an email from uh, Sarah and from myself uh, on behalf of Claire and I uh, about our family. For the last nine months, uh, Claire and I have been blessed by God to foster two boys, John and Shay, who many of you have met and loved. And they're incredible boys, and they're full of bravery and brains. And we are called by God to care for these boys in his word where he says uh, that religion that is true and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Um, We're terribly proud of them. Um, And we absolutely want the best for them, for them to grow and flourish and for them to have a hope in a future. And Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that is worth hoping for. While we had hoped we might get to adopt these boys permanently, God has different plans. So John and Shay moved to a new home last week. We didn't make this announcement last Sunday um, from the pulpit or in a lot of our conversations because of how quickly everything has happened. I want to be open with you guys, and yet much of the story is not mine to share. All five of us, Claire and myself and Jack and Shay and John, are all uh, grieving while we trust God's ways are higher than our own. That God loves John and Shay and Jack so much more than we do. That God is the father to the fatherless, according to Psalm 68, verse 5. And so thank you for loving us while John and Shay were part of our family. And thank you for loving us now as we move into this next stage. We need your prayers. And so we ask you to pray uh, specifically uh, that my God will meet all of John and Shay's needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, which is from Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And then would you pray uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5 for us. That God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, would comfort us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. When you guys wonder or have questions, please don't speculate about us or our boys. Just ask us. We may well tell you, I'm not ready to talk about that right now, or that's not my story to tell, but I will not lie to you, and neither will my wife. It's a privilege to pastor you, and our prayer is that God is glorified through our ups and downs, which we try to live transparently before you, so that as our own lives, as your lives flourish, or as your plans shipwreck, you know that you are not alone. We will tell our story so you can feel free to tell yours. We love you and thank you for loving us. As we continue to worship God together, I invite you to pull out your Bibles and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews is towards the end of the Bible. Hebrews is a sermon, one of the earliest Christian sermons recorded It's written out like a letter, so it looks like a letter, but it's actually a sermon. Uh, At least most scholars agree that it's a sermon. 
It bears a lot of marks of a good sermon. And we are working through it very, very slowly because we believe every word in this book is important. And so Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to read the first four verses. The Bible says this, it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we trust you. We trust that you speak in this book, that you are talking to us even now, that you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Would you put your wisdom in our hearts that we might know how to apply these words and the complexity of our own life and the intricacies of our day-to-day interactions, that you might be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are at Oakland for the first time, you pick the one day this year I'll wear a suit, but I will not preach in one. It is, I didn't bring a towel. Uh, we'd be in trouble. Uh, some of you know uh, that a little while ago, Claire and I bought a 130-year-old farmhouse down the road on the right, and that comes with a lot of things, but in the months of December and January, it did not come with heat. And that was uh, that time, you remember we had like eight straight days of sub, like single digit temperatures and it would be eight degrees outside and 38 degrees on the house. And so we put electric heaters in the boys' rooms and Claire and I just snuggled and it was great. Um, I don't tell you that for any real reason other than to tell you that we had a lot of uh, HVAC guys come to our house in that kind of span of a month or so to get our furnace working. And there, standing out beside my furnace, I kept getting into these deep theological conversations with HVAC repairmen. If God sends you to my house to fix something, you will hear the gospel. It's just kind of uh, a non-negotiable. And so we were sitting there talking about it. And for two hours on the last day that the guy came, we went round and round and round about Jesus. And this fella had interesting ideas about Jesus. And I'm sure he thought I did too. We're standing out there looking at this furnace. And we get stuck on the question, is Jesus God? And he'd respond, no, he's not. And I'd say, he is. And he'd say, well, then who is Jesus praying to? And I'd say, he's talking to his daddy. He's praying to his father. And he'd say, yes, and his father is God. And I'd say, and just as the son is God, so also is the father God. For Jesus said, the father and I are one. And he'd say, well, Jesus himself says that he is not greater than the father. So he can't be God the way that God the Father is God. And I'd say, that's true, Jesus did say that. But your conclusion is not true. You are a man. The person you work for is also a man. The fact that he is your boss does not make you less of a man than it does him. Your, 
what Jesus is talking about, his name, son, is more about subordination, not nature. It's about relationship, not essence. And so Jesus is God, just as the Father and the Spirit are also God. And then he would say back to me, but that means you believe there are three gods. And the Bible says there's only one true God. And I'd say, no, you're absolutely right. There is only one true God. And the God of the Bible The God that Jesus reveals, the God that Jesus worships and participates in is the triune God of grace, the Trinity, the one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, always working in concert, never acting alone. And you say, well, you know, the Trinity, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. And I say, you're right, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept for which we use the idea Trinity, for that, that word is just shorthand for a word, for an idea that the three in one God is everywhere in the Bible. Doesn't that conversation make you want to come work on my house? I need some insulation and some plumbing and some wiring done, so come on over, I'll tell you the gospel, you can fix something. Um, I remember when he left, he looked at me sideways. And I thought to myself, is Jesus really God? Or have Christians unnecessarily muddled this whole thing? So let me ask you, does it matter? What does it matter really? Does it matter if Jesus is God or if he's just a great man or if he's somewhere in between, some demigod, not quite more than human, but not quite fully God? Does it actually matter? Maybe you've wondered the same thing, but then again, maybe not. Let me ask you a different question. Have you ever been exhausted or anxious or terrified or run down or depleted or broken? Yeah, sure you have. We all run into moments where we are not enough, where our emotional and spiritual and relational capital is expended, where we're depleted and we're on our knees as they start to buckle and our hearts start to break. And God knows this. God knows The question, is Jesus God, is not just an exercise in philosophy. It is an urgent human need. It asks questions that are fundamental to human beings, integral to our comfort, integral to our joy, integral to our perseverance and suffering. And this is why the author of Hebrews starts here. You see, the Hebrews church lived in a metropolitan society in which it was growing more and more hostile to Christianity. It was getting harder and harder to be a Christian. You didn't get brownie points for going to church anymore. It did not help your business. Instead, it was becoming very likely that you were going to be met with beatings or the confiscation of your property or the ridicule of your ideas. The Hebrews church was trying to ask themselves if they really believed this Jesus stuff. If God was really worth all the trouble because their lives were becoming more difficult by the day as they lived somewhere in the metropolitan area around Rome. And the church in this book was struggling. They're ready to quit. Many of their friends have quit. And this group of ragged Christians is so exhausted that they've retreated inside of themselves. They're not even interacting with other Christians. They've hunkered down, ready to die, the slow death of atrophy and siege warfare. They aren't sharing their faith. They aren't filled with joy. They aren't comforted or compelled. They aren't living on an adventure with God. They aren't preaching passionately. They aren't teaching the next generation. They're just trying to hold their breath long enough to go to heaven. They're just trying to decide if they believe this expensive nonsense about Jesus or not. And maybe they should just back off to some vague spirituality or some kind of accommodating, you call him Zeus, I call him Jesus, but we're talking about the same kind of guy nonsense. 
Hebrews is written to a broken, a hurting, a scared, a terrified, an exhausted, a run-down, down-on-their-luck, grieving, anxious people. Juan, if some of you could not care less about seemingly arcane theological and philosophical questions, the book of Hebrews starts with the nature and the work of Jesus because it is integral to your personal life. It is necessary as the air in your lungs for you to to live this life full of pain and ups and downs. And so Hebrews starts, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So let's work through this and figure out why in the world Hebrews starts here and how it might help us. He starts off by saying, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And last week, I gave you everything I could give you to convince you that God speaking to you is a good thing and that God has spoken clearly in Jesus. God cannot talk to you any more clearly than God has talked to you in Jesus because Jesus is God. And he bare the brunt of translation. And so the author of Hebrews knows this, and he tells you seven things about Jesus. He stacks them on top of each other in these elaborate prepositional phrases, in these really beautiful uh, hymnic language. He says, whom he appointed heir of all things. That phrase, heir of all things, is a clear allusion to Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, where the Bible says in that psalm, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Here in Hebrews, Jesus is declared, but not made to be the son. Not, he's, he's always been the eternal son. And here he is not given just the nations of the earth. He is given all things, not just all nations, but all created matter. Jesus will inherit all things. What does that that mean? Why is that important? Well, what does an heir do? An heir inherits and takes over for their father. It means that Jesus will be given control and supremacy over all things. And this didn't hit me this week until I started to think about it. And I was talking to my dad. You see, I was blessed to grow up around with some of the most successful businessmen I've ever met. Men who built these enormous companies these incredible multi-million dollar corporations. And they're now starting to retire and have to hand off. And each of them is having to make this decision. Will I pass this company to my son or will I pass it to some manager that I will promote? Will I entrust it to the child that I've raised or will I entrust it to some other person? And we were talking about it this week and we started going through these things. And my dad said, I wonder if he could run his dad's business. I wonder if that fellow's got enough business acumen, if he's a good enough businessman to run that company. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the heir of all things, it means that God the Father trusts Jesus to run the family business. It means God the Father trusts Jesus the Son, trusts him with what? With all things. The Father is handing over everything to his Son because he trusts him completely. And so let's talk about us. 
Don't you think if God the Father trusts Jesus with all things, you can trust him with your life? If God trusts him with every life, don't you think you can trust him with one? Don't you think you can trust God the Father? Don't you think that God the Father is better at evaluating the trustworthiness and the skill and the power than you are? If Jesus is worthy to take care of the whole universe, don't you think you can trust him with your family with your love life, with your son's addiction, with your career, with your college decision, with the algebra test on Thursday, with your ALS diagnosis, with your infertility, your broken family, your rebellious kids, your broken heart. Because God the Father trusts them with that. If your life were a business, have you let Jesus take over completely or are you treating him like a manager? What are you not trusting Jesus with? What are you withholding from Jesus? Where are you saying, Jesus, you can inherit all things, but you can't have this area of my life? The author of Hebrews goes on and he says, Through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Listen to that. What a resume that Jesus made the universe, that he is the brightness of God, the exact representation of God's being, and he sustains the whole universe by his word. You want to know why we sing in church? Because singing hides stuff in your heart, truth that you cannot learn in other ways. Here, the author of Hebrews is quoting a song, a song that he learns at some point in the past. That's why there's all these crazy words that you would never say in real life, but you say in a song. He puts them all together in this thing and he quotes it. And that's why I'm treating it as one sentence. Here we see a clear statement about Jesus' divinity that is early, early in the church's life. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the brightness. In the old translations, it would say the effulgence, a word I never use. Anybody use the word effulgence in the last month? Effulgence is brightness taking to the extreme. You may be dazzled by it, stunned by it, or even overcome by it the way uh, that you are when you look at a sun. In the Old Testament, what's happening here is, is he's saying, you remember in the Old Testament how when God showed up, it got really, really, really bright? You remember in the, the temple, the Shekinah glory would fall on uh, the, the ark and it would blind high priests? You remember when Moses went up on the hill to do business with God and he came down and it was like he was a glow-in-the-dark doll? His face was shining with with God's glory as a mirror shines when a lamp shines upon it, that glory has been, is Jesus. Jesus is that Shekinah glory, the brightness, the effulgence of God's glory made visible and manifest. The overwhelming Shekinah of glory has been accommodated to us in human flesh. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father's being. He is a perfect translation into humanity, into humanity of divinity. He not just accurately reflects God's nature, he precisely embodies it. The scientist will know the difference between accuracy and precision. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus is not just a trustworthy spokesman for God. He is the exact representation of God. Together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, 
Hebrews tells us that Jesus worked in concert to create all things and he sustains all things. That he created all that ever was and ever will be. That nothing that exists came into being apart from Jesus. Jesus created all 8.7 million species on the earth. Think about this with me for a second. There are more than 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. 100 billion galaxies. Our own galaxy, the Milky Way, which is not the biggest of galaxies, has 300 billion stars. We estimate that there are more than 70 billion trillion stars in the universe. 70 billion trillion. How many human beings live on the planet? About 7 billion. About 7 billion. That means you each get 10 trillion stars. Jesus calls each star by name. He spoke them into existence and he upholds them by the power of his word. Not only did he create them, but he he sustains them. He keeps the air in your lungs working. He keeps the electrical impulses in your heart pumping. Jesus sustains the life in all of its activities. He sustains every fire ant and every daffodil. Friends, if Jesus can sustain the universe, if he can uphold it and keep it together, he can sustain you for whatever you are going through. If he can keep the solar system from falling to pieces, he can keep you from falling to pieces. He can keep you... If he can keep the sun shining, he can sustain your joy. If he can keep the rains falling and the crops growing, he can sustain your spiritual growth. Friends, if Jesus is enough to hold up the heavens, he is enough to hold you up. Because I don't know what you're going through, but I know it's not as big as 70 billion trillion stars. But more than that, friends... If he's capable of creating the heavens and the earth, if he's cap- then he's also capable of recreating you. He's capable of renovating your life thoroughly and completely. I know that you are powerless over your respective compulsive sin, over your addictions, your alcoholism, your people-pleasing, your gossip, your workaholism, over your lying or your materialism, over your greed, over your selfishness. I know because I am one of you. But Jesus has all power. May you find him now. But think about this. If Jesus created all things and sustains all things with his Father and his Spirit, if he can make you brand new, this is hardly the kind of person you hire as a consultant for your life. Jesus will not be your consultant that you turn to for advice when it's convenient for you. He will not be your lawyer whom you can turn to when you're in trouble. You cannot pick and choose which of his teachings you'll listen to because he created it all. When he's talking to you, he's giving you advice on how this machine works. And when you pick and choose which of his teachings you will submit to and which of his teachings you will ignore, then you are not inviting him to be Savior and Lord. You are not recognizing him as the the one who created every atom in existence, the one who created uh, every cell in your body. You are the one who might have a few good ideas every now and then. You wouldn't... You wouldn't treat any human being this way if they were an expert in their field. You wouldn't teach Michael Jordan to shoot jump shots. Like, you wouldn't, and yet we do this with God. I can't choose 
to accept God's forgiveness and yet ignore his teaching on forgiving my enemies. You can't choose Jesus' prohibition against same-sex marriage while ignoring his teachings on divorce and adultery. You can't choose his teaching on adultery while excusing the recreational use of pornography. You can't choose his prohibition against drunkenness while gluttonously consuming mountains of Diet Coke. You can't choose his teaching about debt while exploiting the poor with huge interest loans. You can't choose love for the poor and the oppressed while ignoring Jesus' teaching about unborn children. And you can't love unborn children while turning a blind eye to the needs of children that already live, the orphans and the widows in our society, the more than 10,000 children in foster care in North Carolina, the 1,500 undocumented children that our government can't even find. You can't love the conservative traditional gospel of salvation while labeling and dismissing all work for justice and racial reconciliation as too liberal or too political. If you pick and choose which of Jesus' teachings you'll listen to, you have not yet grasped that he is the creator of all and the sustainer of all, that he knows more than you will ever know, and he has designed the machine. I act like a fool when I ignore Jesus' teachings on some area of my life because they're inconvenient as foolish as the man who drinks gasoline and pours Gatorade into his lawnmower. Friends, tomorrow is Memorial Day, and when, when we remember all the soldiers who have died taking orders from our commander-in-chief, many of those men and women died on the beaches in Normandy or in the barracks in Italy. Many died in coast in the Pacific. Many died fighting the British for our independence. Others died forcibly exterminating and expelling Native Americans. And most of them, the vast majority of them, died in our great civil war. We might agree with or we might disagree with the orders they were given and the wars that they were fighting in. But we must honor the individual bravery and determination and courage and valor and character that each of them made. I'm humbled when I think about the men and women who've done this. I'm humbled by their obedience and their valor, their love for their comrades, their sacrifice in order to save the things they risked. And at nearly every Memorial Day, you hear people read a quote that goes something like this. A veteran is someone who at one point in their life wrote a blank check made payable to the United States of America for an amount up to and including their life. And at Memorial Day, we specifically remember those who cashed that check. But friends, I cannot help this morning wonder why so many people will give the U.S. government a blank check, but so few will give Jesus one. Why so many will give the president a blank check but want to argue nickels and dimes with the Savior. Why young men and women will spend months in battle away from their family for America, but many of us can't take a week off in the summer for a mission trip. While we can get up at 5 o'clock to do PT, but we can't get up at 5 o'clock to do spiritual training. Jesus loves you much, much too much to let you run your own life your way. You must surrender, surrender all 
Just as the Father surrenders all to Jesus when he makes him heir of all things, so you must surrender all to Jesus and make him heir of your life. You must relinquish control of your business to Jesus, all your business, even the business you don't tell anybody else. You can trust him. You can trust him more than you can trust the president, more than you can trust Congress, more than you can trust your commanding officer. You don't know why? The last verse tells us this. After having provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I'm going to work backwards for it. What's Jesus doing? He's sitting. When do you get to sit down at your job? When it's finished. Jesus is no longer fighting. He is no longer working. Jesus has finished it. It is done. Look at the words that he's put there. He has provided purification for sins. He has provided, has provided, finished, done, over, final. He has conquered every enemy. He is no longer battling because he has purified and he has conquered. How did Jesus do this with all the authority and the power of God himself? Did he do it with domination and conquest? No, no, he did it with surrender. He is the one who gave a blank check. The only one ever to give God the Father a blank check and to fulfill it with his whole life. He gave every breath, every drop of blood, every spirit-filled act. He said, not my will, but thy will. He surrendered his safety. He surrendered his security. He surrendered his wealth. He surrendered his family. He surrendered his friends. He laid it all down and he trusted his father with every single aspect of his life. And then he surrendered those things most precious to him. He surrendered his majesty and his glory. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Behold the incarnate deity. He who from all everlasting to everlasting has been arrayed in splendor. Wrapped himself in hairy flesh and hung himself on a cross. He surrendered even something more majestic than that. He surrendered that which made him glorious, his intimacy with the Father, the eternal love of God the Father in God the Holy Spirit. He surrendered it on the cross where he who knew no sin was made sin, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God. He took that and carried my sin to the cross and he accepted the consequence of my sin, which is death, not just physical death in agony, a torturous slow murderous death which he did suffer but the spiritual death of separation from his father you see this is the consequence of sin sin is saying my will not your will God and that separates me from God and Jesus became sin and so was separated from the father experiencing the full weight of damnation and so doing he made purification for your sin and my sin done finished before this book was ever written but on the third day death was enlivened life broke free from the prison of death and gave birth to death gave life to the grave transformed the tomb into a womb and conquered every single enemy 
There is not one left to be conquered. Jesus has finished his work and now reigns at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is the God who reigns over all. So friends, I don't know where you're going, but this I know. I don't know what you're in or what you're going through, but this I know. I don't know what sin you've committed, but this I know. God has made purification for it in the self-giving life on the cross. That what you have done and what has been done to you has been purified. You feel dirty, you've been purified. You feel uh, filthy, you have been purified. You feel afflicted and torn down and beat and abused and you don't know how you'll go any further. Well, you are a soldier in the king's army and the battle is already done. He has vanquished the foe and has left you to do the mopping up. You were just an occupying army. After the war is already finished. Friends, if you trust Jesus with every area of your life, you will see him do something so miraculous and marvelous in your life that you will no longer will look at the 70 billion trillion stars and say, when I survey all the works thy hand has made, how great thou art. You'll be able to look at your own life. You'll be able to look at the way God has delivered you from anger, from laziness, from lust, from greed. You'll be able to look at the work God does in your relationships and in your marriage. You'll be able to look at your life, and you won't have to look out there to say how great God is. You'll be able to look at the transforming work God has done in you, but it will take all of you. He will not settle for a piece of you because he loves you too daggone much. I don't know if you can say daggone in a pulpit. Lord, I apologize. God bless the pygmies down in New Guinea. That was funnier than you acted like it was. Friends, do you trust him? If you do, you will see what happened to Jesus come true in your life. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Jesus, who being equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited to his own benefit. Rather, he became obedient he took the position of a slave, being found in human likeness, and was obedient even unto death. Therefore, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. You go low like Jesus if you follow him to the cross, if you surrender every bit of you. He will give you back a life better than you have ever dared to dream possible. Pray. God, there is no lack or want in you. You need nothing from us. You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been perfect in community and love and joy from all eternity. And you created us to share in that love, to share in the elaborate dance of self-giving, other-focused love, to share in the joy that overflowed in creation, the joy that won out at Easter. You command us things. When you invite us into life, you are giving us what is best for us. Trust you. 
your Father trusts you, and if you can trust Him, then we can trust you guys. Everything in us, because the Holy Spirit is working through us to will and to accomplish your will. If you want to become a Christian, you can just surrender. No magic words or spells you got to say. You just say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I've been running life my way. But I see now that I can trust you with everything because you died on a cross to save me. So with everything I have, I'm yours. As a way, you can say amen now.